Hello, I'm Alessandro Miro and I'm 510. You don't need to slate. This is an advertisement. Just tell them about the show. What show? The one you do, you know, where you mess up every audition? I mess up audition? Yeah. How to make it in Hollywood when you're foreign AF? What's that? Your YouTube series. Ah, the one where I become movie star? Sure. Yes, okay. Uh, radio people, hello. Uh, subscribe to Almiro Studios channel on YouTube and watch How to Make It in Hollywood when you are foreign AF. That was so great. We're just going to need to take that again with no accent. The listeners might not be able to understand you otherwise. Why can't you just put subtitles? You no, know we're on the right. Just try British accent. How to make it in Hollywood when you are foreign AF, like, like... Yeah. I'm just gonna do it. Watch How to Make It in Hollywood when you are foreign AF on YouTube channel Almiro Studios. Don't forget to subscribe. And follow me on Instagram at foreign AF series. That's foreign AF series. This episode was sponsored in part by listeners like you. Join our Patreon community and receive early access to episodes, bonus content, stickers, buttons, and more. Visit www.patreon.com slash podcast. Welcome to the YVR Screen Scene Podcast. I'm your host, Sabrina Furminger. My mission is to pull back the curtain on Vancouver's film and television industry and expose its beating heart, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom style, by getting deep and down and a little dirty with the actors and filmmakers and other talented artists who do the work. Capital T, capital W. Today, I am delighted to welcome two guests to the YVR Screen Scene Podcast Studio. New guest, Ted Sullivan. Returning guest, Ryan Robbins. Who was on time today? (laughs) (laughs) That's because you were with me. Five (laughs) minutes early instead of 30 minutes late. All right, first Ted. Ted Sullivan is a writer and producer whose filmography looks like a list of my favorite shows. Supergirl, Star Trek Discovery, Revenge, and daytime dramas. He's currently in Vancouver writing and producing on that juggernaut CW series, Riverdale. After four seasons of trying to figure out how to describe Riverdale to the uninitiated, I've settled on the following. A highly stylized and well-crafted Shakespearean neo-noir drama set in the hormone-soaked millennial world of Archie Andrews and Friends. It's got murder and rum runners and violins and vigilantes and sex and brothels and secret societies, as well as Betty and Veronica and Jughead and soda fountains and all of your favorites from Archie Comics. Ted joined the writing team for season four. Wait, is that correct? It is for season four. Yep. Okay. I was saying it with such like knowledge, but I'm like, oh, I don't know if I know that. I know that. Okay, great. So that's why he's here today. He's up in Vancouver on set while Riverdale is shooting. He didn't even get back to his hotel until 4 a.m. last night. And Riverdale is how he came to meet our other guest, Mr. Ryan Robbins. Ryan's already run the gauntlet in the studio. He's told us about running away to join the circus and his time in a fetish band and the joys of playing Henry on Sanctuary and Pastor Noah Funk in Pure. But in the months since he was last here, he stepped into a pivotal role on Riverdale, that of Uncle Frank, the long-lost brother of Archie's father, Fred. The lovely actor who played Fred, 
Luke Perry, passed away one year ago. It was a devastating loss for many people, including the cast and crew of Riverdale. And instead of recasting the character, the show opted to honor Fred and Luke's legacy by bringing in another Andrews man to mentor, and sometimes tangle, with young Archie, Fred's wayward, good-for-nothing brother Frank. So this is how Ted met Ryan, and this is how I met Ted, through Ryan at an event. I noticed the brotherhood, the brodom that had bloomed between them. In a short time, writer and actor had clearly bonded. So today, we're going to peer into the origin story of a genre writer and producer. We're going to talk to Ryan about Uncle Frank and stepping into Andrew's construction in the aftermath of Luke Perry's tragic passing. And we're going to examine that special relationship between writer and actor, between scribe and actor, and how it can impact what we see on screen. Ted Sullivan, Ryan Robbins, welcome to the YVR Screen Scene Podcast. Thanks for having us. Thank you. I told you she was good. Yeah. <laughs> That's a hell of an intro, I got to say. Jeez. Uh, did I get anything wrong? No. That's okay. all right on the money. Can we talk for a minute, though, about how to describe Riverdale? Because I've, I've had a hard time. I had a hard time um, coming onto it. Um, only because it is so many shows wrapped up into one. Yeah, okay. I'm uh, glad to hear it from a writer on the show. Right, and and um, <laughs> you know, the, it all stems from Roberto Aguirre-Sacasa's mind. He um, He's not only the creator of the show, he was uh, in charge of Archie Comics, but even before that, he grew up with Archie Comics. He, he was a man, or a young boy who was growing up feeling, I think as an outsider, as many writers mm. do, and found solace and friendship and comfort in the halls of Riverdale High and wanted to be in that um, school and have those friends and hang out at Pops and have that community and be a part of that. And as you grow up with that, you then start to create your own stories and then you start to think about um, in injecting some of your own uh, concepts and your own other interests. He's a huge genre guy. He's a huge horror guy. He's a playwright. His mind works a thousand miles an hour. It's very difficult sometimes in the writer's room to kind of catch, keep up with him. Yeah. Um, because his brain works so quickly. Um, but in general, uh, he lived with these characters his entire life. Uh, and then when he basically took over the the creative control of the comics, he reinvented Archie. So uh, he created, before I even knew Roberto, which we met on Supergirl years ago, um, before I knew him, I was a huge fan of his Archie afterlife. Mm. I'm a big comic book fan, and I had stopped reading Archie when I was probably 12 or 13 years old, and I had really transitioned hardcore into DC and Marvel. Uh, but I had, you know, when you start hanging out in comic book shops, even as an adult on Wednesdays, and then you get to a point where you say, um, start talking to the guys behind the counter or the women behind the counter, and, and they say, well, you should check out this Archie Afterlife. And I thought, what the hell are you talking yeah. about? Zombies and, and Riverdale? It was amazing. Mm -hmm. And then also he wrote a, a, an amazing piece um, called The Death of Archie, which was Archie protecting um, uh, a... A gay character from um, a hate crime and dying. 
uh, it was a one-off and it was a really powerful emotional story. I gave it to a lot of people to read to say like, this is an amazing piece of work. And then to find out, I think it was a year and a half, two years later after I read those that he was on the staff of Supergirl that I had just joined, uh, it kind of blew me away. We had a lot in common. Um, and then years later, uh, he asked me to come on board the show when I um, was no longer on Star Trek. And I really, I had seen the pilot. I had actually read the pilot. He had given me the pilot to read before it actually even got picked up. And I loved it. Then trying to catch up through three seasons of shows was like, <laughs> what the hell is happening Cause here? Because it does change tonally and it moves from genre to genre. Like it's a, it's an exciting and dizzying ride as a viewer. Yes, and it also does some things that most shows don't do. Most shows have an A, B, and C story. So an A story is, you know, that would be like Archie, and we would fall, and that's the most number of scenes in an episode. Then the B story might be Jughead and Betty. The C story might be Veronica and Hiram, her father. And that's usually it. On Riverdale, there's A, B, C, D, E, and usually F. And that's a tremendous amount of story. And the other thing that they do is they they bring what would normally be two or three episodes worth of material and they tell it in one episode. Uh, so it's a difficult structure to get your head around. The one thing that I will say that I had it going for me is I wrote a lot of episodes of Revenge. And mm. Revenge was very much the same type of thing. We didn't have as many subplots. We used to. Do, a lot of times we did A, B, C, and D stories. The D stories often got cut. Yeah. Um, those were like the Charlotte and Declan stories. You would end Aww. up, I know. I, and I love both <laughs> of those actors. It's just that what would happen is when you only have 43 minutes and 30 seconds, uh, those stories would get truncated down uh, to a very, very small level. Um, so, the and, and the other thing we did on Revenge was we would tell three or four episodes worth of material in one episode. Yeah. And people used to say, if you miss one episode of Revenge, you feel like, I can't even keep up. Uh, Riverdale was very much the same type of thing. So it was very hard for me at first to learn the language. It's kind of like when you go see um, Shakespeare or watch a foreign film and you're reading subtitles and it takes you about three or four minutes to get into the rhythm of either oh, the yeah. language of Shakespeare or I'm, I'm reading subtitles and watching the uh, the actors emote and 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 react to each other on screen, and then after three or four minutes, it's you're you're in the zone. But it definitely took me about three or four episodes to get into the language of Riverdale. So funny because I would have I would have thought your answer would be well I I worked in daytime so I mm -hmm. know how to juggle a lot of different storylines and weave you know different histories and stories together. But the, that's fine. You answer it with your truthful way. The, I, I will say that the the. The element of of soap opera is what soap opera really taught me was how to lay out long term story. Yeah. So you can you can say well, one one of the things that the reasons why I got hired originally at As the World Turns was I was a writer's assistant, and I wrote on my own a I think it was like a eighty page uh, long story document that was incorporated probably 30 to 45 characters that played out over what I thought was going to be 12 months worth of story. Uh, it ended up being six months mm -hmm. because all that stuff gets compressed down over time and you just start burning through it. But uh, I learned how to, I'm pretty good at knowing how 
this can lead to the next beat, can lead to the next beat. Uh, so I can come up with a long-term story. Uh, soap opera, daytime soap opera moves much, much slower. We did five episodes a week. Mm. We were on 50 weeks out of the year. So you could watch an episode on Monday and miss two weeks of story and come back two weeks later and they just left the house. You know, so like... I remember those days. You know, it, it, it's... It, so from a speed story, because we only... We basically had six sets an episode, mm. and we had five acts. So a lot of it was people standing around a room for the entire episode, and you had to build to, well, how am I gonna get an exciting act out <laughs> from these two people talking for basically four acts? Um, so, but it did teach me how to write fast. It did teach me how to turn things around really quickly um, and to take notes and implement them very quickly which when I made the transition into nighttime, into prime time, I remember sitting with Waylon Green and Michael Angeli who were uh, running Law and Order Criminal Intent when I was there. And I was very, very nervous. Waylon Green was one of my idols. He you know, wrote The Wild Bunch and ran all four Law and Orders and he was on the first five seasons of ER and just a legend. Yeah. Uh, and I was, and he said, "Yeah, this is great. We'll uh, we'll pick up this episode, and you turn it around." I'm like, "Well, how quickly do you need it?" I thought they were going to say two days, and they said, "Well, take I don't know two weeks to write the outline, and four weeks to write the script." And I went, "Holy crap! <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic! All yeah. right, now I can actually you know get under the hood and do a good good episode." But that so soap opera def, definitely plays a role in how I write prime time. Yeah. Um, but it's not necessarily in the way that a lot of people, I th people think of Riverdale as being very soapy, which is true, but it's, it's prime time soap. It moves fast. Yeah. And it's dense. It, well, I mean, it, it's, it's serialized though. I mean, yeah, that's what absolutely. would be the, uh, but for, for me, I guess what, where I was seeing the, um, the comparisons were in that bringing in that you like with soaps, this, what, what daytime fans love is legacy. You know, there's always a uh, backlash when you bring in a new character. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they care about the characters that are like, you know, have been there for like 25 years or whatever. You know, oh, you wouldn't have done that. You know, so like on a show like Riverdale, you know, legacy and family and stuff is and that kind of legacy. The the, the tapestry of the show is important. And there's two well. types of legacy. There's the legacy of the show and there's the legacy of the entire franchise of Archie Comics. Mm. So you're you're walking this really interesting line where you're both paying homage or, or respecting the original source material but you're also reinventing the wheel all the time yeah so it's it's a it's a really in, and you're working in other elements too like uh roberto and i were obsessed as kids growing up with both the hardy boys and nancy drew so we have a lot of mystery jughead and Betty are basically our Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew of the show. And yeah. so they're always walking around with flashlights. Last night we were shooting some really cool stuff with people walking around with flashlights in the in the rain and in the in the darkness. And I was thinking, like, man, this is just like every cover of every Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew book that I read growing up, which is a thrill in itself. Okay, so before we continue talking Riverdale, before we talk to Ryan, who's sitting there just so so patiently, with such a kind look on his face. <laughs> I, I, I want to go do a little bit of time travel. Mm -hmm. um, you get to choose your time travel vehicle of choice. Uh, 
frequent options are the DeLorean, TARDIS. the TARDIS. I'm a, I'm Thank a, you. TARDIS. Yeah, I need the a TARDIS. first one who chose the TARDIS yeah. out of seventy. You also had the option of whipping the Enterprise around the sun, or holding onto Superman while he does that, or or to have the Bill and Ted phone booth, or the old timey. I mean, Bill and Ted phone booth is cool, but TARDIS also translates all languages for you, That's so right. that anywhere I go, I can actually understand people. So, yeah. and it's got a swimming pool. It has everything. Yeah. It's what massive. It's it's not bigger inside than it is That's outside. Right. Yeah, I mean, you step into the TARDIS, you're stepping into actually a different dimension. Yeah, yeah I shouldn't have said it. Yeah. Listen, why don't you just go in the corner and start doing some push-ups, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Got a box of comic books yeah. there, you're welcome to yeah. read. Well, okay, so we're I'm getting in the... Well. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay, so we're getting into the TARDIS, and mm-hmm. you're gonna set, you're gonna tell the TARDIS where we're gonna go. I wanna get to know you when you're nine years old. Cause I have a nine-year-old and I find with my nine-year-old, she is like, she has such a clear idea of who she is and what she wants and what she likes. So when she makes a statement, I feel like it's a very clear statement. So I wanna go and go back and meet nine-year-old Ted. What, what did he want? What did he like to do? What did he want to be? Well, uh, it's, that's an interesting age because a lot of things around that period um, happened, which sent me on this trajectory where I am right now. Uh, what I thought I wanted to be at that time was something to do with um, nature. I was, I, I was a, a conservationist, or uh, I. Unfortunately, I had a misconception of what some of those things were. I read a lot of these British um, adventure books, which was uh-huh. about collecting animals and bringing them to zoos and they would go out into the jungle and and there was all these adventures about seeing the animals and all and I loved that now looking back on it I can't think of anything more horrible than grabbing a, an animal in the wild and saying yes I'm taking you from this beautiful jungle and putting you in this cage in London but um that's kind of what I thought I wanted to do because I loved being outside my family is not outdoorsy they're indoorsy to the ultimate degree but Ever since I was a kid, I liked being outside. I liked camping and canoeing and-, and Where did you grow up? Well, I grew up, that's also part of this nine-year-old thing. I, I grew up in New England, but then around that time was when we moved to Switzerland. Um, oh, okay. Yes, so um, around nine, I accidentally came across uh, Star Trek. Uh, first episode I ever saw was Sitting on the Edge of Forever, which was very confusing because if you stumble into that episode, it starts with spaceships and all that type of stuff. And then it goes back in time to the late 30s and there's Nazis and and, and it, it's a very strange episode for yeah. it to be your first episode. And I knew a lot about- But the strangeness though must have been pretty cool. Very much. And also what blew me away was at the end of the episode, Kirk did not save the woman. Hmm. She, he had to let her die and it just, it just hit me in the stomach and they, and, and and I think that's the first episode where Kirk says, "Let's get the hell out of here." So where he, the first time he said "hell," I think it's "hell," or, or I'm pretty sure that's the line. But it kind of really blew me away. I was at my grandparents' house watching on this, their giant TV that looked like a dining room table, yeah. you know. <laughs> um, and I became kind of obsessed with Star Trek. I started reading the little short stories mm-hmm. and collecting the Mego action figures, and the, I had the the Star Trek Enterprise Bridge where that you could spin the 
the transporter around. Following a few of those on eBay right now. Yeah, they're they're amazing. They're so expensive. (laughs) Yeah, they are. Um, Do you still have yours? No, I do not. Oh, I know it's a bummer. R.I.P. And around that same time, my grandfather uh, bought me a Batman comic book, um, Batman versus Skulldugger, and I loved the art. It was that late '70s, really awesome, like Neil Adams style art yeah and like just scratchy lines and long it's when batman wasn't like a beast he was like lean and and uh he was he was kind of ninja-y but like he it was just so cool and that villain was terrifying to me because i thought vampires were very scary and he wasn't really a vampire but he killed people by shooting a beam at their heads where a skull would appear on their foreheads and they'd die and it was strange story but it scared the hell out of me and I became kind of obsessed with comic books and around that time then we moved to Switzerland and when we moved to Switzerland we didn't have a TV we didn't I'm suddenly in a different country and all I did was read Mm. and I had people send over huge stacks of comic books every month in a mail and I would read those I read a ton of books and then there was one movie theater in Geneva um, that would show English language movies, um, but not necessarily always modern ones. Like we would see, that's where I saw Bridge on the River Kwai, or that's where I saw 2001, or that's where, and and so I was 10, 11, 12 seeing all these movies, and I just, what is going on here? Yeah. And I and even things like Pink Panther, and like all that type of stuff, I just got a whole flood of movies. It's that, like you were going to storytelling university exactly. in a way. Yeah, and and also I, the other thing was I had my best friend with me who was my brother. We were, were very, very close in age, basically Irish twins, and he shared all of the same interests that I did. Not so much comic books, but definitely movies and storytelling. And we used to, we, we, we would do like, uh, we were very obsessed with Abbott and Costello. We created a little uh, comedy duo where we would do a show every week called a comedy show called the joke is funny and um were the jokes funny no (laughs) we were like 10 and 11 years old they were awful but we would put it on for the neighborhood and our neighborhood was a whole hodgepodge of different people from all over the world like um you know from saudi arabia and from uh ireland and that opened my mind a great deal too because growing up in outside of Boston is I'm I'm not very shy in saying it's not a it's not a really open community it's a towny town and and when I then moved to Switzerland it was like being exposed to an entire the whole world it's the global village it is yeah. and um, that changed my perspective on life and then I also didn't feel as American anymore and so that when I came back to America years later uh, I wasn't. I. I didn't care about TV. I cared about reading stuff and going to movies, and that's really what sent me on this trajectory. Uh, and then the other, the other thing that happened around that time through my British friends uh, was coming across Monty Python, and my brother and I oh. were. Yeah, I know. Uh, and my brother and I were. I actually told this story to Jamie Lee Curtis a couple of weeks ago, which was really cool because she. That's did, a cool flex. Because <laughs> you know she did uh, Fish Called Wanda, so there, there's a, a little bit of a walk to get here. But um, my brother and I wrote uh, a piece for Monty Python when we became obsessed with them. We were probably 13, 14 years old, and 
called uh, Monty Python and the American Revolution because we thought that would be a really funny idea. We thought you know, Graham Chapman could play George III and we had a whole, whole everyone cast and all that. We sent it off and our favorite Python was Michael Palin. So we, mm. we mailed it to Michael Palin. Fast forward six months later, we got a, a letter back and we open up and we just see at the top Python at the letterhead. And we went, what? Is, and, and our hands were shaking as we pulled it out. It was a handwritten letter from Michael Palin who said, the lads and I read this. It's really, really funny. You guys are really good writers. You should keep writing. Uh, we're not going to do any more Monty Python movies, but I am about to do a movie w that Terry, meaning Terry Gilliam, uh, is directing where I get to shoot Robert De Niro in the head. And at that point, we were like, oh my God, this is amazing. And, you know, this was pre, obviously pre-internet, but also pre like real t movie and TV magazines and that sort of thing. So we would look through the Boston Globe every week to see the movies like, is is this the movie that has Terry Gilliam and Michael Palin and, and, and Robert De Niro? And we f finally came out, we went to go see it and it was Brazil and that, and we saw it, and we saw it three times in one day. We walked out, and I said, w "We need to see that again." We walked back, in, and that just locked me into. That's what I want to do. The, the one caveat to that story is, many years later, it must have been seventy. I mean, uh, ninety-seven or something. Maybe it was ninety-eight. I was nominated for a daytime Emmy for, uh, or no, I guess it was a Writers Guild Award for uh, As the World Turns, and. Uh, my parents flew out to New York, we went out to dinner, and sitting at the next table was Michael Palin and his wife. And so I said, I sent a bottle of wine over to him, and he came over and he said, why did you do that? And I started to say, like, well, you were very ins inspirational to me, my brother and I, I started telling him the story, and he goes, was it about the American Revolution? This is year, decades Whoa. later. And my mom just starts crying, my dad is just stunned, and, he, you know, gave us a little toast, and and when I told that to Jamie Lee Curtis, before I said that, she went, "He remembered, didn't he?" I said, "Yes, he did." And she goes, "Yeah, he's he's an incredible man." Wow. Yeah, it was crazy. You know how to tell a story, <laughs> Ted. I literally have chills right now. Oh my god. That's so cool. Yeah, it was crazy. That's one of those like. It's too perfect a story that people go like, "Is it yeah. made up?" <laughs> it's like, no. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, it was crazy. Oh man. But that's basically the. I don't even know how to follow that up. Really? All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us awesome. today. Awesome. It's been great being here. <laughs> Other than Michael Palin is obviously Oh, amazing. my gosh. Yeah. No, I, so, I, I, honestly, I don't smoke. I feel like I have to go and have a smoke <laughs> after that. Um, wow. So what would, then was your first time writing something when, when you saw your words on screen and you had felt... I have made it. I am creatively fulfilled. Oh, creatively fulfilled. Um, well, those well, are two different things. Interesting, because for a lot of people, they're not. Okay, well, I mean... If they are for you, let's hear Let's hear it. The first time, you know, I before I got into soap opera, I had this amazing, amazing teacher at USC. And, and I, I can say that in the four years at USC when I was there, and I know it's a very different school now, I had two good teachers and the rest were all garbage. Uh, the two teachers I had are two of the most extraordinary men I've ever met in my life. One was Abe Polanski, who was a member of the Hollywood Blacklist. Mm. Uh, he was a hero of mine growing up, having him as my teacher for directing class, and then later to have him ask me to be his 
TA uh, and to hear stories about, you know, he was special forces in World War II. He went behind the lines uh, way before D-Day uh, and blew up bridges and then went in and freed uh, concentration camps. And, and then to 10 years later be brought in front of McCarthy and uh, all the rest of those cowards and said, uh, you know, you're not an American. I mean, so that, and he taught me a lot of lessons, life lessons, less about um, the industry and more just about being the type of person to not put up with um, certain types of injustice, which sometimes gets me in trouble. Yeah. But, well, that'll uh, help you navigate the industry so you can keep your dignity right. and your self-respect. Possibly. Uh, <laughs> but um, And the other was this guy, Nelson Gidding, who also, he was a, a bomber pilot in uh, World War II. He was shot down and was in a POW camp, Nazi POW camp for two years. He wrote, um, he was nominated for an Oscar from a Rita Hayworth movie called I Want to Live. He wrote um, the movie um, The Andromeda Strain. Oh. And uh, he wrote The Haunting. Uh, he wrote seven Bob w- Robert Wise. I, I, I knew Robert Wise, so like through him, so I, I call him Bob. But um, <laughs> sounds very douchey. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but we'll forgive it this okay. time. But, but next time, I'm sorry. But um, Nelson um, was the guy who got me my first agent. We wrote three TV movies together that never actually got made, but they were my first sales. So that was very exciting. Yeah. But the first time I saw words produced on screen was uh, for As the World Turns. Mm. And I I will remember Felicia Minibar, who was the uh, executive producer, she brought in the episode and she put it in the, right, in the VCR, that's how old I am, uh, and we watched, the, uh, we watched the episode in the writer's room during lunch because and that was a really nice gift yeah. you know it was and it was interesting to see that episode and to see your words translated but the first time I saw something that I was proud of like I mean I, I was proud of that but the first time I went hot damn that's my story and that came from a place that I understand was my first episode of Law and Order Criminal Intent mm. um, and that was that brought me Oh man, I'm gonna get emotional. Yeah, uh, but uh, sorry, that brought me in uh, to contact with uh, one of the most amazing people I've ever known in my life, um, who was still in my life, um, Waylon Green. And when you know Waylon, he he's just an extraordinary human being. Um, you know, we're you know, he's 84. Um, 48 um but we when we are together we're like he's one of my best friends yeah and um it was very intimidating you know writer of the wild bunch and and which is one of my favorite movies and he he, he doesn't put his name on certain scripts like you know war games or or the bodyguard you know like those types of things he's just incredible humble and a good decent human being and he hired me and uh, mentored me. He continues to mentor me. We just finished writing a pilot together and uh, our third one together. And he taught me what it was like to take ownership of a story, to take, to really 
deconstruct a story at one point he, is, yeah. he when we were working on the episode he looked at me and said you're, you're uh, you look a little upset and i said well the story's changing a lot and he said well i would hope so <laughs> otherwise it's a boring story and he, he learned he helped me learn to um let go and to realize that telling a story doesn't end with it in your head or typing it on the page it's a living, breathing thing all the way until it airs. Mm. And the first time that I saw my first episode, which was an episode that w got me hired on the show, came was born out of a friend of mine, Doc Doherty from New York, from this little island in Jamaica Bay called Broad Channel, that, that was my story. And it was shot beautifully, and Jeff Goldblum was amazing in the episode, and it was just, I was just watching it, and I stood the entire night that it aired and I just watched it uh, and I had a glass of whiskey in my hand and I realized at the end of it I hadn't taken a sip because wow. I had just been watching it and uh, I was I that was probably the proudest I've ever been because it was the first one where I went I loved Law and & Order and to be a part of that and have Jeff Goldblum being the detective who I freaking you know it's Brundlefly for God's sakes <laughs> and uh, I just I was it, it, I don't think I'll ever forget that. I, I remember every second of that night standing in my living room watching it. And I was watching it alone, and it was kind of great. Have you experienced that feeling again? Are you constantly trying to chase that feeling? Or, or in your work, are you looking for new kinds of feelings and uh, magic? I, I think with each hurdle that you clear, you then, you, you then look for the next one. And so the next one becomes, you know, I, I, I fought to get onto Supergirl. Like yeah. that was something I really, really wanted to get on. Why? A couple of reasons. One, I always liked Supergirl. Um, I liked Car and, and not because she was super popular when I was a kid. Like she, a lot of, she has a very complicated backstory. Like they keep retconning her and changing her backstory and all that. Sometimes she's even a gray blob alien, you know, that is dating Lex Luthor. But um, I, my friend Bowie Kim, who is an incredible writer uh, uh, on Star Trek, uh, she she says, oh, you and underdogs. Like, I love, like, Supergirl. I love Aquaman. I love, you know, like, I love mm. the characters that in the 70s and 80s that a lot of a lot of other people are like, that's a stupid character. But I like those characters. And I also knew that Supergirl had, I love that it was Supergirl and not Superman. Mm. Because I thought, this is a real chance for girls who haven't really seen themselves beyond Wonder Woman, and that was a long time ago, mm -hmm. and she was basically played for cheesecake. You know, I mean, like, she's awesome, but that didn't capture who Feminist Wonder Woman. Feminist spirit? Exactly. Yeah, the, I mean, what Gal Gadot was able to do walking into to No Man's Land, very different from what Linda Carter did, and which was revolutionary for its time. Or but. Susan Eisenberg, I think, is in, like, yeah. for me, she's my ultimate Wonder Woman on Justice League because there is so much strength and dignity and power and she is not played for sex. She, yeah. is, she is played as a strong hero. I thought, wow, I think we can probably do something interesting here. And then the casting of Melissa was as perfect as the casting of Christopher Reeve. Mm. And then when I met Melissa, it's like, oh, you are Supergirl. And the one thing I, I as... When I left Supergirl and I 
I was promoting Star Trek at Comic-Con. I hadn't seen Melissa in a year, and we were both backstage, and she kept running up, and she jumped on me, and we were hugging, and we were talking. It was really nice to see her again. And as we were just starting to catch up, there was this little tug on her sleeve, and she looked down, and there's a little girl dressed as Supergirl. Oh. And she looked at me and said, sorry, I gotta go. This is a job for Supergirl. And yes, <laughs> it was amazing. And that, to me, was the culmination. That, more than any episode, and I wrote, I think I wrote five of the first 13 episodes of that show. Um, or four of the first 13, something like that. But um, that moment was the most proud I was of that. So, like, that's a different hurdle that I crossed. Because then I saw the, the cause and effect of the show. Um, and, and, you know, that show went through a lot of growing pains and all that type of stuff. And as any, A little bit. <laughs> but as any first season show does. Yeah. But that moment for me was then I was like, oh, wow, I like that. I want to do that again. And then, you know, and then moving on to Star Trek and now on to Riverdale, there's, you know, and then at some point I want to do, I, I've been Spock a lot to someone else's Kirk. Mm. And so I would like at some point to be in the captain's chair. I mean, you could still be Spock in the captain's chair. Sure, sure. No, he, uh, he's a good captain. Yeah. Although if you look at some of those TOS episodes, <laughs> <laughs> he seems pretty willing to let some people die. Like, you know, although, you know, in the end, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one. Absolutely. Whew. Okay. I think actually you've given me a great segue to talk about, because you mentioned Melissa mm -hmm. and you mentioned that, you know, you saw each other. Uh, I guess for the longest time, I had assumed that writers exist in some conference room somewhere with whiteboards and, and boxes of source material and laptops and, and I don't know, Nerf guns. I, I'm just guessing here. Uh, and are not really interacting with cast or, or those levels of production at all. And, and maybe that's just my assumptions, uh, but you seem to be, to be very present on set, to be very in, involved and interactive with the, I mean, I just see even from social media, get such a nice view of what's going on on the Riverdale, uh, the Riverdale, you know, behind the scenes because of your social media feed, you know, so could you, t you talk to me a little bit about, um, well, first, what is an ideal relationship between writer and actor? And then specifically what's going on over here. Sure. Uh, okay, there's three things that I think I can unpack there. One is, you're not wrong at all. There's a lot of writer's rooms. In fact, John Wells, who is unquestionably one of the most prolific and, and, and incredible showrunners around, believes very firm, firmly and passionately that writers should not go to set. Mm. Um, he believes that the writers are in the writer's room. And uh, I mean, this is what I have that has been relayed to me. Uh, I've never worked with John, but um, he, he believes the showrunner is kind of the point person, and which makes a lot of sense when it's John Wells. And, um, and that it, the, sto the story or the message or the, the messaging of the episode can get muddled if there are more voices in the mix. Then there are other people. Um, Roberto is a perfect example of this. Uh, that believes very passionately that the writers should take uh, ownership of the episode hmm. and then go to set and make sure that the vision of the episode through their eyes uh, is told correctly. And 
they are there as advocates for the show and and we have very in-depth and daily tone meetings what is what they're called um with roberto to make sure that we're capturing what he sees uh so it's it's kind of a, a partnership as we go as we go ahead um and then you have of course the director in there yeah. as well I would imagine that gets a little crowded, though. Showrunner, director, writers talking about the tone meeting. Yeah, there, it, it's that can be a, a, a tricky, uh, a tricky relationship to navigate sometimes because there are the directors that come in and say, "I am a, I'm a director for hire. I, I go to different shows. I am going to be in charge of trying to. I hear what you're saying. I am going to get the best performance. Find the best." shots and put it together the best way I can based off of interpreting this text uh, in the in the through the eyes of the writer and the showrunner. There are other directors, and this is a subset, but ones that I tend to have more prickly relationships with that come in and be like, well, I've, I've literally had a director tell me, no, no, that's wrong. That's wrong. It's like, no, that's not wrong. That's literally on the page, man. Like, I wrote that. That got approved by the network. That got approved by the showrunner. You're wrong. And what I sometimes say is, you're a guest in our house. Mm. So if we ask you to take your shoes off at the door, you don't say, oh, I don't take the shoes off in my house. Y you do. You take the shoes off in our house. Yeah. Or you don't come back to our house. Um, so it can't. But it, for the most part, my relationship with directors uh, tends to be either good to fantastic. Uh, for instance, um, on Riverdale, I've had some really great, great relationships with directors, uh, but um, and, and and certainly on a lot of the other shows that I've worked on too. But but you're different though too. Like you, I gotta say, you you're yep, very, pull it all the way to yeah. Ted's very, uh, as you can tell, he's very he's very genuine. Uh, he's he's and he's very approachable. And on a set, a lot of times you'll be on a set and a, and a writer just stays at Video Village, and and if there's a question that pertains to the writer that the writer needs to answer. They'll answer that question. Um, uh, Ted cares very deeply uh, about the environment on the on a show and, and then cares very deeply about all the people involved, cast and crew. Uh, and there's something uh, that is, you, you're drawn to that. And you're, he's somebody that you, you're easily drawn to um, so much so that I would find myself accidentally going to Ted and be like, hey, what do you think about this? He's like, D you can't, can't ask me that. Yeah. <laughs> I'd be like, let's see what the director has to say. Right. Right. <laughs> I was like, right, shh, right, protocol, right, sorry. Um, but, you know, uh, even Ted's around, he's taking these wonderful snaps and these, these pictures. He's also, there's one thing uh, that Ted does that struck me immediately that I, that I love to death. He takes the time to go to actors to each and every actor you know if, if you're a day player if you're a lead doesn't matter if you knock a scene out of a park or, or you've done a, a good job ted's a guy that'll come up to you and be like man you killed it you killed that scene thank you so much wow you and I, th I don't think people realize how much that means uh to actors you know um i i watched i watched you uh go to you know one of the characters it wasn't a giant role did a great job, but when Ted went out of his way to, to seek him out, hey, where is he? Where is he? like, hey, listen, man, you killed it. You really nailed that scene. That was awesome. Thank you so much. And he left. The guy was choking back tears because no one had ever 
sort of validated him like that, you know, and he the kid felt like a million bucks, and that's kind of what Ted uh, can do on a on a on a set for you know that's what that's what I felt. I mean, I just felt like uh, he's very encouraging, you know, um, and 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 not every not every writer has that personality. Not every yeah. writer seems to. Um, or or maybe it's a confidence thing. I'm not sure, but uh, it's definitely not a confidence. <laughs> thing. Definitely not. A <laughs> oh confidence. no, there's no confidence <laughs> there. But maybe it's just about like deciding, like okay, maybe this is like other screenwriters do things in different way. But this, you are are living what your idea of a screenwriter is, and maybe it should be somebody who is interacting with the cast and is you know being a positive influence on set. I, I yes, I also think there's a couple of other things that just one when I was. I, in the soap opera days, I was younger, I was in my 20s. Uh, I was a complete jerk. Uh, I, was, I was making a lot of money. I was living in New York. I was living high on the hog. Uh, I was married and then uh, I imploded and I got divorced and left the business. And I was doing everything from putting up drywall to driving trucks to uh, living in warehouses and very strange uh, being an MRI tech. Um, it's also all, random. Yeah. I would want to watch this movie, yeah, frankly. It, it's a whole bunch of different types of, and other things that maybe not aren't as legal as something else, but like... No, I really want to watch this movie. <laughs> um, and then I decided to come back to the industry, but I decided to come back in a different way. I, mm -hmm. I always wanted to write, but I said I probably should come back and and learn how it works on a, on a very basic level. And I, I'll never forget a story I read about Buster Keaton when he visited uh, Fatty Arbuckle on set. Uh, Buster Keaton wasn't a movie, he hadn't been acting, but he wanted to know how movies worked. And he took one of the cameras and he took it apart and then he put it back together. And so now he knew how a camera works. So then he knew how he could frame, uh, how he could use it in a way to make incredible shots mm. and that's why his movies I think are still stand the test of time when I came back I decided well instead of trying to just get back into writing which I knew was never going to happen because when you leave they don't want you to come back I was a grip and I worked in the electrical department and then I built an editing system and I taught myself how to be an editor and I did that and then I became an editor of music videos and then I said well I should probably direct and then so I started directing and at the same time I was editing and even when I was at Law and Order I worked at Law and Order during the day and at night I worked the night shift at ABC as a promo editor because I just didn't know if the writing thing was going to come out and I was making pretty good money as an editor but when you do all those different oh, departments you're learning so much you're learning so you are yeah. so you learn like and I became a way better writer after I became an editor, and I also understood what was the importance of being a gaffer, what was the importance of being a key grip. I understood all those different departments, which is, you know, Ryan said I don't sit in Video Village. That's because I have more in common with the crew. Yeah. <laughs> so I try to also not just tell actors they did a good job, but like camera department they did a good job, or lighting, you know, the, like that looks amazing. And I know how hard that is, and I know a lot of times no one even gives a crap. Like, I know how hard it is to get that shot moving backwards down the hall and keep everything in focus and the focus I'll go up the focus puller and say man you killed that and that is important so I think it 
I, I also got treated really badly on a lot of different sets, and I got treated really badly as an editor by a lot of different directors and producers. Mm -hmm. So what I made a conscious effort moving forward to say, well, I, I certainly don't want to do that to people, and I'm sure I have not been 100% accurate or consistent on that level at all, um, but I certainly tried to do that. Yeah, it seems like an abiding principle in your life. This episode of the YVR Screen Scene Podcast is brought to you by Al Miro Studios' hilarious web series, How to Make It in Hollywood When You Are Foreign AF. Subscribe and binge all the episodes at www.youtube.com slash Al Miro Studios. I want to deep dive a little bit into, um, into Uncle Frank and... Uh, because <laughs> Ryan, he looks kind of scared. <laughs> I, I'm sorry that I make you nervous in in some ways. Not at all. I love okay. it here. Yeah, I, and I love when you're here, it's and I and I do. Weirdly, I like having fun with you. It's weirdly fun. Yeah, <laughs> well, because she 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 sets you at ease. You, you, it's so easy. You just sort of forget that you're recording all this. You That's just, what's dangerous. It's just a. Wonderful... It is very dangerous. I, I and I am very careful, and I I make sure if you say anything really bad, you know, last time you were here, you went off for five minutes about what a total nightmare Amanda Tapping was, and I had to delete all of it. <laughs> uh, yeah, no yeah, one yeah. who knows anything believes that. Okay. <laughs> It, it was really exciting when it showed up in my Twitter feed that to see you were going to be joining Riverdale as Uncle Frank. And also, I, it was also painful. Like, it, it made me sad. And I didn't even know Luke Perry at all. But I but it made me sad. Me um, yeah. And so and I, I know that you you worked with him previously. So so mm. tell me a little bit about um about your your entry into Riverdale and the kind of the the concerns maybe the worries the history that you carried with you well first of all the role was written uh not for me it was written for a mutual friend of Ted and mine uh oh. Ted, Ted wrote it for somebody else uh so oh. let's get that out there um I didn't know that yeah uh Ted Ted, Ted written role I had read for it I wanted it uh very badly I, I knew the role existed um, I have a great uh, amount of uh, love and admiration and respect for Luke. Um, he was very kind to me, especially early in my career. We go back to the Jeremiah days, mm. um, you know, and, and he was just great to me. He'd come, he'd produce these movies up here, and and uh, he'd always cast me in them, and and we had a blast. And we'd always joke around how we how we look we we looked related, but mostly from the eyebrows up, and and. Uh, <laughs> Um, and he was just, we had a, we had a lot of fun, you know, I mean, being on a movie with this other, um, well-known actor who, uh, was not, was not, uh, it was a bit, it was, he was brutal. It was really difficult, um, to, to work with. And, uh, I think Luke and I at that moment had sort of bonded in solidarity. Um, this guy was particularly, uh, unkind to me in a scene and mm. I, uh, as most people know, um, I don't, I don't deal well with, uh, that. I don't really, I don't suffer fools and I don't, um, I don't like being talked to in that way. And, I, and I'm, I'm, I have no problem standing up for myself. Yeah. Uh, it's another reason Ted and I get along so well. Um, we're similar in that way. It's, I don't think that it's not like we're hotheads. We're just principles guys. It's, we're blue collar guys. And, and if you, 
say something shitty, I have to call you on it because you, you can't do that. You can't, you can't, you can't try to hurt people to make yourself feel better. And yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't like that. It's about doing things cleanly and with respect. Yeah. So I, I, so I called him on it. I called this guy out on it on, on set in front of everybody. And he's a, he's a big famous guy, much more famous. And somebody that I had admired and somebody I'd look up to a lot, uh, especially as a kid. And I said, I was like, no, you don't get to do that. And you don't get to talk to me like that. And, uh, and then Luke and I had really kind of bonded over it. And, um, anyway, uh, I, I'd, I'd read for it and I found out I didn't get it. And then, uh, I, I, I was, I was really, uh, quite, I, I as I really thought, no, uh, no, that can't be true. Like, I'm supposed to, I'm supposed to have this role. Like I just barely believed like that it's, I, I can't not have it. Like I'm supposed to play this guy. Yeah. And, uh, and it went away and, and, and I went and I, 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 I took a movie and I was gonna go away and shoot a movie, and um, my reps are great, and they didn't want to tell me that it had come back around because they didn't want me to be disappointed twice if it if it fell through, and then uh, and then it turns out it, it did come my way, and uh, it never in the never does this happen, but we we contacted the the casting director of the film and the producers of this film that I was contractually obligated to do, and we explained the situation in great detail, and they said, oh hell yeah, you have to go do that. Wow. Um, and they uh, and they released me from that contract so I could go to Riverdale and it all kind of felt like you know it was meant to it was meant to be and um, when I I got there and, and somebody had said um, you know how you feeling those are some big shoes to fill and I I said I well thankfully I brought my own shoes because yeah. I, I would never try and I would never try and and um, and and immediately uh, everybody was wonderful and and, and so welcoming and um, especially KJ, um, you know, plays Archie, obviously, um, was just, ah, he's just legend. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and then, um, and then when, and then Ted, I met Ted pretty immediately and, and, uh, it was the first day, first day. Yeah. And the first day of my episode, yeah. first day of, of your episode. And the, and the first, by the end of that first day, it was like we'd known each other for a decade. Yeah, it was it was crazy. It was just yeah, and um, we have a lot of mutual friends, and we have a lo we have a lot of similarities. Our personalities uh, complement each other really well. I think too, also just because we've both been through uh, a lot of things. Um, we're both straight shooters. Um, you know, we 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 kind of just get to the point when we talk to each other, and um, um, yeah, and it's been a it's been a blast. It's been a hell of a ride. I have to say one thing though. Ryan keeps saying that you know we're very similar and all that type of stuff. We're similar in the way, like he, Spielberg for a long time, and I'm going to make an insane comparison, and I do not mean to link me to Spielberg, but only in this metaphor. Spielberg, when he found Richard Dreyfuss, was like, "Oh, that's my that's my guy," you know. And when Scorsese found De Niro, he's like, "That's my guy." He's like what I envision. Like when Scorsese goes, like, "Oh, I'm writing this." role it's De Niro so like I'm not him he's a man I'm kind of this weird broken like he's the, ver <laughs> the he's the he's the version of me that I wish I was like when I'm writing I'm like that's me and it's 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 not at all but uh, <laughs> so basically you're saying, so I'm your avatar yeah you're my yeah. avatar that's okay. exactly I'll take right it. Yeah, now take it. Ted last time I saw you I had been like putting you on the spot and being like, have you watched Sanctuary? Have you watched Pure? Have you, did you do your homework? Have you watched him in all his other stuff? Of course not. No, what are you talking about? <laughs> I'm, I'm, 
Do you have any idea what writing the show is like? I mean, it, it's the weird, like one. I, All the writers say they have Nerf guns and then they sit on the floor. I'm kidding. That, yeah, Lots of respect it, for writers, but. It, I mean, it, it, one, <laughs> one, uh, writing on Riverdale is just, it's, it's pounding away at a story uh, for maybe three or four days and then realizing that direction doesn't, attacking through a jungle and then just getting to the a point and you go oh that's a cliff oh we got to turn around and you got to go back because the the stories are so dense and you're trying to find your way and you don't have a bird's eye view of anything um so that we're there working really hard okay. and 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 the other thing too that you were right about is that it, uh i do spend a lot of time on set and and i've been for for better or for worse known a little bit as the actor whisperer um so Sometimes I get sent to set to cover other people's episodes, or, mm. um, and in the case of one episode this season, which I'm very proud of, uh, I love mentoring. I love. I do a lot of uh, diversity outreach. I, I read. I go to the WGA diversity mixers to try to find um, assistants and low level writers and read their script. Actually, read their scripts so that I can, when when showrunners often complain as they do I can't find any good diverse or female writers I can say here's 14 yeah <laughs> I've read them they're ready to go on this episode on episode 13 which turned out really really well it was written by um, Evan Martin and, and um, uh, Chrissy oh my god I'm blanking on her last name <laughs> um, Evan and Chrissy wrote uh, um, this incredible episode Chrissy's our script supervisor and um, Evan is uh, our writer's assistant and I this is why Roberto is so fantastic most shows would never send those people to set yeah he wants to train young writers uh, diverse and female writers to become writers and producers and ultimately show creators themselves and he asked me to be their mentor on set so that I could guide them through how you interact with directors how you interact with cast how you give a note how you and, and there were times I would say, okay, go in and give this note. And then they would come out and go like, I, we didn't do that quite right, do it. No, that kind of didn't, and I, I would, but that's a quick learning experience. And I also am a big proponent of, you learn more from mistakes than you do from success. Oh, yes. So. Um, you know, I have to say something about those two too. I, I, I met them um, and what was really, really so fun was, uh, it, correct me if I'm wrong, they were fans of the show. Absolutely. Started working on the show. Started assisting people, but then they, then they, then they write an episode, and then they go to set. And I was there the first day they set foot into Pop Steiner. Wow! I was in Pop Steiner when they walked in, and the looks on their faces to go from being fans to just working on the show—that's pretty cool. I'm a fan of the show that I'm working on it, and then they're like, "Oh, we wrote an episode. Oh, the episode's getting made. We're going to set to supervise the episode that we wrote." And then with all of that behind them, yeah, walking into Pop Steiner. It was the coolest thing to see the looks on their faces. They were, their faces must have hurt so much from I took, the smile. I took pictures all over the, like on, on my Instagram, you can see just every moment almost in real time. And in fact, the crew made them milkshakes so they could eat milkshakes at the counter. It was great. It's it's Chrissy uh, Maroon. I, I, I kept thinking in my head, Monsoon. I'm like, that's not right. Yeah. Uh, but um, That would have been a cool name yeah, too. Um, so uh, I, I love doing stuff like that and, and, and 
And I did not mean to put you on the spot and be like, have you done your homework and watch Ryan? I'm just saying, when you have a quiet Except you totally put me on the spot. I totally <laughs> did, because it's good. Because then, you know, because I, I just, I, I, I love what you do together. And I, I would, I want to hear what it is that you think Ryan brings to his role as Uncle Frank. Well, I have to say this. Uh, Roberto had always for a while been talking about this character of Uncle Frank. And originally it had been conceived as uh, as the brother in Bloodline, like kind of weaselly, and, and, and he was just trouble from the moment he showed up. And I kept pitching a slightly different version and finally after a while I think he said just write a, write the sides just let me see what you <laughs> what you're talking about and so I wrote the sides based off of you know I've done some volunteer work with the VA and and, and I I think and I do soup kitchens in LA on Sundays at, which puts me in contact with a lot of guys that are and and, and women that are are left behind and yeah. feel um, like the world has kind of dumped on them. And I have certainly felt that way at different aspects in my life. And there's some of that has been self-inflicted and some of that has been bad luck. I've, and I think the bad luck and self-inflicted type of stuff is things you and I bonded over. Yeah, but um, I wrote this very, emo that was the first thing on Riverdale that I wrote, which were sides that I don't even think ever made it into an episode, but um, was, my pitch for this character and Roberto really liked it and that's what the character became I have to say this mutual friend we have killed the audition I was like yes <laughs> and then Ryan's audition was like oh crap <laughs> 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 oh crap yeah oh no um he brings a truth and honesty obviously because that's the type of character he is a human being he is, but there's also something, there's a courage that he brings in the in the flaws that he's willing to expose on screen. And that's what makes a character immediately relatable. When you, when you watch someone on screen not be afraid to be frustrated or weak, there, there's a moment in one of the episodes that we did where um, he turns, you know, Uncle Frank turns to Archie after it's been found out that he stole some money. Mm. And Archie goes, why don't you just ask me for the money? And he just turns and yells, because you're my kid nephew yeah. and I'm a 40 year old man. And I have felt that so many times in my life. And I actually cried on set, which doesn't happen very often. And that's because Ryan goes there. Yeah. And he, I don't know if you don't know how to go there. And, and, and I tried to do the same thing either on the page or on set. So I think really quickly, that's what linked us. But man, this guy is a brave actor. And, and sometimes yeah. people think of brave actors as, oh, they got naked or what. He's a brave actor from exposing everything inside that most people keep locked away. Yeah. You really nailed the description of, of Ryan, though, for sure. <laughs> I, was like, I was just going to segue. Can we talk about something else? No, uh, absolutely not. <laughs> um, there was this... Uh, it's the, the, the way this character is written was, is, is, was, is very um, uh, attainable for me. Um, 
the his his story his feeling of less than um his anxieties and his his, his, his PTSD and his thing, you know his regrets his regrets yeah. is you know in and uh and making choices that from an outsider's perspective seem like a horrible cruel choice to make but from his mind it was 100% the right thing to do because had he not the situation would have got exponentially worse um and I, and I, I get all that and and I'm also really lucky that you know KJ is a wonderful scene partner for me um we my very first my very first scene is the, the, the when I'm in the episode, just at the very end of the episode, and I meet uh, Frank meets Archie for the first time, and and originally we were supposed to be uh, we meet face to face, and I was standing up on the stairs and I, and I I said to Gabe, you know, can, can I stay here, and and he just looked at me, and KJ put a big smile on his face and he's like, let's try it, let's try that, and immediately I felt home, I felt mm -hmm. like I was like these guys are willing to. They're willing to, to play with me here. So we had done a scene, I was really nervous. And I was like, it's a big show and it's a, you know, um, I didn't understand the pacing of the show yet. And it's the pacing on, Riverdale pacing is like, it's insane. It's, insane. it's, it's, it's really, really insane. It's, you are packing all this emotion into these really specific quick beats, but you don't feel that when you're shooting it. Um, that's what I was worried about, you know, cause when you watch the show, it's pace, it's snappy, but, it's not necessarily how we shoot it. That's, we did not want, not with the, not with the episodes you were there, yeah. um, and uh, so we're we're shooting the scene. And then I I kind of glancing around. It's my favorite set. It's the it's the boxing gym. Oh, <laughs> wonder why? Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and I'm looking around and I glance over and right between KJ and I on the wall is this big portrait of Luke. Yeah. And I just like got it just really like, even right now it just punched me. It just it made me really, uh, I got emotional. And I said to, to Gabe, who was directing, I was like, hey man, can I just do one more? Cause, and I just kind of pointed and he went, oh, oh yeah, yeah. And and that's the take they ended up using. Uh, and I, I, and then KJ clocked that moment and he, he wasn't on camera, but I, I just, he had it in his eyes. It was all we all felt it. We all had this moment together. Yeah, and uh, and that was it. Right after that scene, KJ and I just we hugged it out, and it was like he was. I I knew I knew I was going to be okay there. I knew I, I knew I knew I felt like I fit. Yeah, and I was really fortunate because Ted was there for all of my episodes. He was supposed to be there for what? Like what was it? Seven days. Seven days. Eight days. Eight days and it turned into seven weeks. Seven weeks. So yeah, he was supposed to be there for eight days. It was great for me because we just hung out a lot. <laughs> <laughs> but I, it, it was, I mean, I i don't know. My, Ted was literally there for every, every episode I have shot so far. So, With the exception um, of the first. With the exception of the first, of course. Yeah. 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 Which was just such a blur. I was like such a nervous wreck. And it was a big There's blur. one thing I want to say too about what just Ryan's story right there, which is another element of why he's such an amazing actor, is he has actors, well-trained actors, which he is one, have a tool belt so that they can pull out tools when they don't know how to play a certain scene. Like you can always fall back on those, uh, on your training. But he's also smart 
a smart enough actor to recognize the impulsive emotional uh, magic moments mm. and he's really really exceptional one of the best that I've ever worked with um, at being able to catch those butterflies of emotion that are flying around which are very very difficult they're like moths really that are really difficult to grab and and he knows when it's there and when it's not and he also knows when to rely on the tool belt and when to rely on the heart and the gut and, and the, the magic yeah yeah okay but i want i even I mean, you've said such lovely things about ryan mm. i want you to speak a little bit about ted as an artist <laughs> t t tell me about the about, about like can you like what do you enjoy most about Ted's work? He's Ted's vision, Ted's words. Work. Yeah, I mean, I've I've been really lucky to read um, a, a few uh, scripts that, that Ted has written, and um, they're all very different. Um, but I'm a Ted writes antiheroes in the my favorite like it's in the best kind of way like Ted doesn't write perfect people he doesn't try to write perfect people he doesn't um, he, he all of his heroes are flawed um, and but it's also like you know the, the, the nicest thing is well they're page turners of course they're you know that's what good writers do they're 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 page turners but they're also like you feel like it's gonna sound really cliche and I'm sorry but you, you when you read it um, something that Ted's written you, you, there's a takeaway like you've you've learned something or you've discovered something or you've felt something something shifted in there hmm. like it hit you a little bit and it and it always catches me off guard because you know you think you know yourself really well and then you'll read a scene that you if someone had told you about the scene, it might not land. But when you read the scene as as is written, uh, something just kind of hits you. Like, oh, oh, that made me feel. Oh, not okay. What, what the hell's going on here? And then you you keep going and you find yourself like, um, you know, you'll meet a character that you'll think like, oh, this will be the, this will be this Claire character. They'll be fun. They'll be the one. And then the character that you think is going to be your favorite is not and the character that you don't think is going to be your favorite ends up being your favorite and i just think it's i think it's really clever and i think it's really smart um and also uh <laughs> i can't say that <laughs> <laughs> okay well that one you can say after uh i hit i hit so you know what i love about this whole conversation though i i guess like, you know, I'll go to award shows and it's like it's all the actors are together, you know, all the directors or you don't really get to to see this kind of meeting of minds, you know, and sharing of experiences and really this bond happening, you know, between between the actor and the writer. It's actually a very cool kind of study. You know, Ted? <laughs> I feel like a little bit of like a scientist right now. <laughs> no, Ted has an ability to write the angst that I feel that I can't express. I can't, I'm not witty like that. I'm, I'm not like, uh, in a, in a conference, I don't, in a confrontation, I'm not the talker. I, at best, I'm fuck you, you fucking fuck. And I rage. Um, and Ted verbalizes my angst and my rage in a very truthful way, in a way that 
if I could calm the hell down, I could express myself that way. And I, and I love him for it because it's accurate. It's accurate for me. Mm. And it's one of the things I love about Frank and the things Frank says are things that I feel, but maybe don't have the confidence to say, or maybe I don't have the, um, I don't know, maybe I just, I'm not, I'm not willing to, yeah. you know? Uh, and, and how much of Ryan, because uh, if I remember correctly, from our social media interactions, Ted, uh, Frank wasn't supposed to be a boxer, right? Originally, um, or or was he? You didn't know about Ryan's background. No, I think that, I, yeah. I, I think that was the case. Didn't know, although you just meet him and you go like, "Yeah, that's a boxer." <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I, 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 Archie's I, Archie's been a boxer, so I think, and we have this. You know, sometimes you write to the standing sets that you have. Yeah. Um, so uh, it's just, it's, I think it's one of those things where you came in and it just feels like, yeah, he's a boxer. And it, like all that stuff organically, sometimes you get casting that just goes, holy crap, this just all falls into place. And I, I'll never forget, on our first day, um, us working together was the, the opening teaser of, my episode where Archie comes down the stairs. It's just an iconic thing that happened on Riverdale for three seasons of Archie coming down the stairs and Fred Andrews, Luke, was standing there making, making breakfast. breakfast and turns around with the with the towel over his shoulder in flannel and we did it with you. And that was intentional. It was in the script and it was, it was rough to watch. Uh, I didn't know Luke like you did. I knew him I mean he was an amazing guy I wrote a role for him in Revenge that we met with and turned he turned down just because he was such a he was so self-aware and he was so great he's like you I even named the character Luke <laughs> because I wanted him to play it. and we met and he said you just want me to be here because you want to work with me I'm wrong for this role and he was right and, yeah. I, and the, he's the only actor I've ever known who who's ever done that that's how self-aware he was but to to watch Ryan do that moment without it being pornographic or or um you know gross in any way but yeah but it didn't feel gross no it was an authentic moment and and it hits Archie in that moment mm-hmm. uh you know that, that those types of things just all fall into place and so that's why he he was the guy to play the role it, it was really it was really that yeah. That day was crazy. So you know the flannel was an obvious choice, and I'm wearing it now. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but um, I was standing there at the kitchen, and and, and um, props came over with a dish towel and said um, very gently, um, "By the way, uh, Luke wears it over his right shoulder, just just like this." And he kind of flops it this way, and I went, "Oh, okay, okay." Um, right, and she went, is that okay? And I said, yeah, I just, that just, yeah, okay. you, uh, is, you're really feeling this, huh? And she's like, yeah, but you're great. And I just about lost it. I was like, okay, 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 so, okay. So, and then, uh, it's that, oh, you really don't want to sound cliche. Uh, I flipped a towel on my shoulder uh, 
and it, it was like putting on a superhero's cape. Yeah. Oh, fuck. And at, at that moment, I won't forget ever. And it, it just, and, and the feeling of the towel landing on my shoulder felt like I just, like I, like I just put on a superhero's cape. You had. It's not cliche because it's true. Yeah. Yeah, and that just like that whole bit, and then, um, and then I didn't want to see KJ. Uh, we didn't tell KJ. Yeah, I know. We didn't tell KJ that. Yeah. Um, that extra, that extra bit. Yeah. And then he came down, and I, I heard him. I heard him pause. Like I, I. Yeah. It was a, a physical. Like you could hear the stop, and I turned to see the look on his face, and uh, yeah, it was crazy. That was a heavy day. It was good, but it was good. It was, it was good. good. It was a that good was day good. for me. For it was a good day for like all of us. It was a really cathartic bonding day. We got to we got to acknowledge uh, the elephant in the room, so to speak, and we got to just like uh, emote our way through it. I mean, as a viewer, it felt like it felt like a celebration. It, it nothing about this whole process, which I mean, it was all out of you, you were dealing with something that was out of the that was out of the production's control, right? You know, and so, but they've, I feel like they've dealt with it with just such a respect of the legacy. That's why I say it's respecting Fred's legacy and respecting Luke's legacy as well. Roberto is uh, a really intelligent, emotionally um, aware person. Uh, I emailed him the day, both uh, Roberto and Michael Grassi, who is now, you know, the, the mastermind behind Kitty Keen, Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, they were really in the, I emailed them the day that Luke passed and I was so, and, and they were just like it actually when the news broke and then when he passed, we emailed back and forth a little bit. Uh, I didn't ask how they were going to deal with it on the show or anything like that. I just knew how amazing a person Luke was and, and how sorry I was. And I knew that they felt it too. And because they felt it, they made the really smart decision on not trying to jam it into the end of season three. Yeah. They said, what we're gonna do is smart. finish this story, take some time to emotionally process this, and then figure out what the best thing to do is. So for me to walk into season four, yeah. <laughs> and the first episode we're breaking in a room full of people who regularly were crying as we were trying to break a story, uh, it was a rough one to walk in on. And just spend a month wrestling over the story. But that's because everyone in that show, cast, crew, writing staff, loved Luke. Roberto loved and respected, still does, Luke. Everywhere you go on set, Luke is on, a picture of Luke is there. Everywhere in the office, everywhere, yeah. everywhere Luke is there. In the writers, Luke is still on the wall of, the cast, the active cast, in our writer's room because he's just a part of the show. He's a presence. He's a yeah. presence in the show, and he has an impact on the show, and that's been certainly Archie's journey this season. So they're, they're I mean, Roberto, obviously he's a brilliant playwright. He's a, just been a brilliant writer his whole life, but he knew he's also just a human being, and he knew that we have to do this right. And I think that has been... We didn't just do episode 401 and say, now we're done. That has been something that has been woven through every episode of this season mm. in one way or the other. Sometimes in Archie acting out and 
being a superhero because he was just he's dealing with rage and doesn't know how to do it sometimes trying to save kids in the in the community center and then when uncle frank came in it was having to deal with it head on and because you had respect for luke and roberto had respect for luke and everyone on the writing staff had respect for luke i think that protected us from going into the grotesque um aspect of storytelling yeah and it, and the, the great thing is i mean i, I got a lot of uh, early uh pre-lash i guess because not backlash but people really like blowing my messages up like instagram and everything just like what are you doing and really how, oh, yeah. how dare you and this is this is this is it's terrible and you're a terrible person for taking this role and and oh, uh, i i have stoned by you but that makes me very angry yeah. especially yeah. knowing you as i do they're just passionate kids yeah. it's just really passionate kids and and uh, there was one that i actually reached out to and i said i'm just accused i'm, I'm, I'm confused why you would come to my personal instagram page and it wasn't like a private message just like on a photo of me and somebody and just start this just this tirade and um i was like this, this is a strange thing to do i said you know I'm, I'm, I'm sorry you feel this way but just give it a shot don't don't abandon the show, please. Like just watch it, and and um, you know we're gonna we're gonna respect Lucas. Of course we're gonna respect Lucas. If you don't like it, then that's fine. But may just give it a shot. So yeah. And then I got this one. She apologizes. And it was very, it was all very very nice after that. But um, the they didn't just throw in another father figure. Yeah. There was no element of anybody trying to replace anybody. And Frank is nothing like Fred. Yeah. And they didn't, and it wasn't until episode nine, and then even then it was a blip. And then Frank kind of comes in and he goes out, and it's no, no one's, they're really, really clever that way and really respectful that way of not, you know, trying to. I mean, they could have done that with any number of characters. It could be like, okay, well, let's just make Tom's going to be Archie's new dad now, or yeah. FP, or whatever. You know what I mean? Like, there's lots of, they, 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 there was a lot of, potentially easy outs just go well Archie needs a father figure or like a or lot of us Archie becomes the father yeah. figure well, or like a lot of us in life Archie loses a father figure yeah. yeah the other thing too that we made a conscious decision to do is not to make Frank be a father figure he's an uncle figure and he's a broken uncle figure yeah. and if anything Archie sometimes had his we can say shit Fuck yes. <laughs> okay, well, I heard you say fuck before. I was like, oh, this whole time I've been sitting on myself. Uh, uh, uh oh, he's unleashed now. Yeah, no, but but like it became more interesting to see Archie try to save Frank and Frank have an influence on Archie. And so it was a back and forth. It's the dynamic between Archie and Uncle Frank is very different between Archie and his father or Archie and Mary his mother. Because in those cases, he's always the child. Yeah. In this case, they can be a couple of men trying to find their way through life together. Yeah. And through grief and through trauma Absolutely. and regret and us. Oh. And I love the, how much Mary despises Frank. Yeah. Like, those scenes are so fun. <laughs> I love I love the two of you, you and KJ, sitting on the couch almost having, like, yeah. the same, like, so body great. language yeah, and stuff. So it was... We, that was we, did, we did that completely organically by accident and then like <laughs> we got to shoot that you have to do that like, <laughs> <laughs> that's what we have to do now fellas gents we could talk here all day we have talked we have. here <laughs> all day um i am i'm excited to see where the show goes i am excited to see where your this muse 
brotherhood relationship goes frankly yeah i i i have to say i try to go through life um as dorothy in wizard of oz on the yellow brick road yeah. picking up uh scarecrows and tin men and cowardly lions um because i believe that's the only way you get to oz otherwise you fall asleep we in are a poppy so field. similar <laughs> in that wow um but uh, he's definitely definitely a scarecrow and uh, and I've done that and I've done that on every show and I, I try to tell that to young writers and to young actors it's like you could hate the show but you're gonna find people on this show you know I wrote Resilient Isles I would never have watched that show in a million years but I met a whole bunch of writers on that show that were fantastic and the writers room of Revenge is maybe the deepest bench I've ever served on and that uh, I was absolutely the least talented writer in that room and I am grateful for all of those experiences, yeah. let alone the actors that I've met along, along the way, too. Yeah. But you don't always meet a scarecrow. No, he's definitely a scarecrow. I've never been more complimented by someone telling me I don't have a brain. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be your brain. <laughs> Please, somebody has to be. Oh, my gosh. Did you write that for him? Because that was perfect. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Yeah, I just texted him. Yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right. Give me your pluggables. Uh, Ted, where can our fans find you on the social media? I am weirdly Carter Hall, spelled Thangarian, uh, at Carter Hall, K A R T E R H O L, on both Twitter and Instagram. What about you? What about you? Uh, at Rye Robbins on Twitter and at Rain City Ryro on Instagram. And, and they both deliver a lot of awesome social media content trying yeah, yeah sometimes my political stuff gets me in trouble but what am i gonna do i'm sad we didn't talk about your political stuff today that's probably for the best <laughs> yeah well no our listenership is pretty woke and progressive and it would probably just be just ag us agreeing with each other probably then i'm just you know yelling in a bubble so yeah i do have a question actually a political question do sure. you do you know have you been following canadian politics at all yeah yeah do you note a lot of parallels between you know um progressive canadian politics and progressive american politics or like are are like ndp similar to your democrats or i i i think there's a lot of similarity there i think the way the world has gotten more and more Polarized. I think there's a lot of similarities between the progressives and the ultra conservatives all around the world, which mm. is why we're seeing um, the same divisions in Germany and France and Brazil and Canada and America. I think, uh, and and I don't think that's an accident. I think part of it is social media has become this great equalizer amongst the conversation in yeah. a negative way. So that's kind of a bummer. I've the happiest I've been in a long time was when I quit Facebook. I oh. keep Instagram and and Twitter for work, but uh, uh, otherwise I wouldn't be on. I certainly wouldn't be on Twitter. Yeah, you have to have Ted back and have him tell you about uh, his adventure therapy. Adventure therapy? Yeah, it's 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 epic. Is it that is, like it, it is next level, <laughs> incredible? out in the desert adventure. You mean like actually going on an adventure for therapy? Yeah, I mean... I Because like tomorrow I, I I'm going to a place that. in Richmond to go and smash some things for therapy. Yeah, just with a lot more explosives. 
Oh, please come back. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I need to hear this. All right. Thank you both. Thank you. Thanks for having I'm us. I'm so glad we did this. Um, to you, our listeners, I thank you as well. Please like and subscribe. Leave us a review if you are so inclined. They help us find even more listeners. You can find us at www.yvrscreenscene.com. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram at YVR Screen Scene. The YVR Screen Scene podcast is hosted and executive produced by me. Sabrina Firminger and it's edited by Simon Firminger special thanks to Mariana Firminger for recording our Patreon ad and to Tyson Braddock and Paul Firminger we are a family business for technical support and to Dane not Firminger Devalet for the original music YVR Screen Scene is a division of Fish Flight Entertainment join us next time for another deep deep dive into Vancouver's dynamic film and television scene and cut cut